being that we're all from Cameroon, I would just specify Cameroon in particular because that's what I know better in Africa. Being that you have been a practitioner in Cameroon and here in the United States, I'm just thinking as you talk, do the doctors in Cameroon really break down the diagnosis for cancer like we do here? And how long does it really take for that to come back? Because I don't even know if they actually have the resources to really break down these cancers. Yeah, you're living, it's like... um we're comparing a cat to a lion because they are all, they are all, uh, how do they call them? <laughs> what do they, they're all of the cat family. Right. <laughs> the, the problem we have back home is fundamental in Africa. There's a fundamental rudimentary problem. Welcome to the show. I am your host, Anya Fombath, and I spark the heart conversations that challenge questionable cultural and societal norms that threaten the well-being of the African community. And I also share stories about growing up as Africans in Africa and in the diaspora. I strongly believe that normalizing open discussions and sharing experiences, whether good or bad, will not only make you find your voice, but will broaden your sense of purpose and empower others to do the same. So if you have ever tried challenging certain African cultural and societal doctrines, or if you have ever felt like it is about time that we confronted these issues in our African community and do better as a people, or even if you have always been interested in learning about the experiences of other Africans growing up in Africa and the diaspora, then you are in the right place. Welcome to Living African. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Living African podcast. Today, we will continue our conversation on breast cancer in honor of Breast Cancer Awareness Month, which is October I have here with me a couple of guests who I am very, very excited to talk to or speak with. And we will continue our conversation from a different perspective on breast cancer. We will still be sharing stories of surviving breast cancer. And we will also dig deeper into the scientific aspects that are all related to breast cancer. So I have with me today three of my guests. One of them, you already know her, that's Gwen Gu, which we spoke with last week. And then we have Aquita, who was also another very beautiful breast cancer survivor, who I am very inspired to hear her story, and I really look forward to that. And then we also have Dr. Foma, who is an oncologist who actually specializes in a lot of cancers, and he will be very glad to talk more and provide you know, us with additional information, especially the medical information that has to do with breast breast cancer. So I just want to welcome all three of you here, and I so look forward to this conversation. How's everyone doing today? Good, good. Thank you. How are you? I am doing wonderful. Thank you so much. So um, let's just go straight into it. We will be talking again. We will introduce breast cancer from a different perspective. And let's just try to revisit the prevalence of breast cancer in the world and maybe in Africa. So, Dr. Foma, I will definitely want you to speak more on that. But before that, I really just want you to introduce yourself officially. Hey. So, I am uh, Muno Kenneth Foma. 
I'm a trained physician, trained in Cameroon. I think one of the most, uh, the first medical school in Cameroon known as Q's. I did seven years of medicine there. Right. I later on specialized in uh, clinical pathology back home in Cameroon. Mm-hmm. And I also did a master's in public health. And I'm a very big public health advocate. A lot of people know me as the COVID doctor. They don't know I'm an oncologist because I'm always online talking about COVID COVID. just because I feel it's a public health emergency, especially back home. So I'm also a hematologist and oncologist, and I'm presently doing an advanced fellowship in bone marrow transplant at Cornell and in Staten Island University. So that is really who I am at the moment. Love all the beautiful things in life. Right. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. So um, let's uh, talk about the prevalence of breast cancer in the world and also in Africa. What do you have to say about that? So what I would like to say is that breast cancer is actually the most prevalent cancer in women. Mm -hmm. And at every given time, there are about 8 million women living with breast cancer in the world. Mm pretty prevalent. And uh, what we're seeing is that with advancements in uh, science, a lot of these women are getting to live with breast cancer and survive with breast cancer. Right. Every given year, we're having about 2.5 million women entering into this pool. And it's a cancer that affects mostly women who are above the age of 60, but not forgetting that young women could also have breast cancer. The prevalence is a bit skewed in Africa because we have problems with uh, screening. Yeah. And uh, from all the history we know about cancers till date, the time we started screening cancers early, you're going to patch them early and you're going to be able to cure them early. Yeah. So public health education and screening is so important. And back because of this reason, the prevalence in Africa and in Cameroon, where I'm from, it's underrepresented. So a lot of women do have breast cancers, but they never know they have breast cancers. They may die of other things because there's a lot of death from cardiovascular diseases. There's a lot of death from infectious diseases. Yeah. And a lot of women we turn to see are those who come around with advanced breast cancer stage four diseases. So this is why if you go back to the statistic in Cameroon and check how many people do have breast cancer, it's so underrepresented. Because no one screens. There is no healthcare policy to even screen in most African countries. That's so true. you don't need to see them. So you can only see what you're looking for most of the time. If you're not looking for something, you think it doesn't exist. And that's the state of cancer in Africa. Well, thank you very much for that. And that is very true, um, what you said about the skewness of the, you know, the prevalence in Africa. And that's really why we are trying to sensitize members of our community to be more aware of those things that just because you feel healthy. And like I was saying in my um, last episode with Gwen, you know, in Africa, we are so used to the infectious diseases, right? We're used to malaria. We're used to typhoid, like the things that you can feel. But there is literally another public health emergency going on with non-communicable diseases in Africa. Like you can't really feel cardiovascular diseases until you are literally dying, like of a heart attack or something. You can't feel diabetes. You can't feel hypertension. Those are things that you can't feel. You can't even feel cancer for the most part until when you really start feeling 
the effects of it or you start really feeling the symptoms, then it's a little bit more advanced, you know, in some cases. So um, those are things that we really have to be very sensitized um, and knowledgeable about, at least even if we don't have the services that could help us to detect these diseases as early as possible, we can start by focusing on ourselves and taking that first step of being more aware of what's going on with our bodies. So that's really why I, I want us to talk about diseases like this. And I want to thank you for sharing that. Now, is there any difference? What is the difference between black women having breast cancer and the white women? What is the prevalence? So it's one of those things where I always say, before doing oncology, I taught black people don't get a lot of diseases mm. just because I grew up and I never saw them. Right. And uh, even being a physician in my early years of training, I never could imagine that black women could be at risk of getting breast cancer. So breast cancer is slightly more prevalent Mm. in black Mm -hmm. women below the age of 50 years. We get to see more black women have breast cancer. And where do we get the statistics? In countries like the U.S. where the the population of blacks is pretty high, we are able to see And black women tend to have it early. They tend to have the most severe forms of it, meaning most of the time their breast cancer is triple negative. I'll talk about what that means. Right. We should turn to not actually respond to treatment as much as their colleagues, the Caucasians. Interesting. And uh, the prevalence, the difference is not too much. So you could get like uh, 16% in... uh, in uh, black women and about less than just say one in every eight women in the U.S. is going to develop breast cancer. But after the age of 50 or 60, the prevalence is the same among black and white women. But Mm. we tend to see younger black women less than the age of 50. We think this is related to some genes that are found, which we are not testing for all black women. And we also have a problem with... um, in the communities where we stay, where there is no advocacy really yes. for yes. us to go out there and test and screen for mammograms. And in the U.S., we tend to see black women diagnosed with breast cancer at later stages than their counterpart whites and even Latinos. Mm. So mm. we turn to really have the burden of the disease and we die more from it because most of the time we're diagnosed with a stage four disease that right. we cannot okay. cure, but at least we can do something to help them. So... Overall, knowing for Africa, we think we need to do more studies. I'm someone who is study-oriented to figure out what is happening in Africa. But I've had just within the past two years, I've had a lot of young people back home in Cameroon that someone has given me a call. My sister is sick. Oh, Muno, do you know about this family friend? He has stage four breast cancer. So it's existing. It's a silent killer. And we get to see it only when these people are dying and uh, when they have stage four disease. Yeah, that's interesting information that you just shared. Uh, because there are a lot of diseases. I, I, What you said was actually very true in terms of a lot of diseases that we always think that, oh, it's in pigeon, we say now white man sick, right? We don't really think that we can have it back in Africa. Sometimes we depend too much on our immune systems that we've been through so much hardship compared to the people in the West that we can fight anything. But You know, I was having a conversation with a friend and she was actually telling me about her multiple sclerosis diagnosis. And I was taken aback. I was like, oh my goodness. Like I I didn't, that's basically the only person that I know in Africa that has multiple sclerosis. 
I literally thought it was more prevalent with the white people. I, I, I wouldn't even think that, you know, someone that I knew actually has been suffering with that for a very long time. So when talking to a lot more people, it really enlightens me to see things from a different perspective and really encourages me to want to inspire and also in turn encourage members of our community to know that any disease can happen to you. It's, there's, there's no disease that's assigned to a specific race, you know. So that's really something very interesting that you shared, and I want to thank you for that. Now, uh, let's talk about a few signs and symptoms of breast cancer. And by the way, before that, you know, from what you talked about, you know, the breast cancer in black women, I'm really honored to have two strong black women and African black women with us today who will definitely... Uh, shed more light of their story and really emphasize more on why it is very important to check yourself as early as possible. So I, I really look forward to that later on in the conversation. But can you share with us some signs of breast cancer? So this is a common question. My patients ask me, why, how, what are the signs of breast cancer? I love to start by saying there are no signs. Mm. I know it's going to shock you. The reason I love starting by there are no signs because majority, 80% of the women have no signs. And that's the first message to pass across because right. if they are looking for a sign in order to determine if they're going to do a mammogram, then we're giving a wrong information out there. Mm. But I'm going to encourage every single woman and man too to understand their body. No one knows your body like you. Especially when you're showering, you should just learn to look at your body, understand it, and uh, know exactly. If you see any change, I'm going to make it easy. We all know how our breasts look like. The women know better than the doctors. If you see any change in your breast, which is abnormal, you need to make sure your primary care doctor sees it. You need to make sure your gynecologist sees it. Because women do annual, in the U.S., they do annual gyne. Um, yeah. checkups. And uh, you need to make, they do annual medical checkups. That's what you're supposed to do. So you need to make sure someone sees it. And if someone sees it, no matter your age, someone's going to order a mammogram. So you get your first early mammogram because you saw something different. Now, what are the different things you can see? You can imagine the different things. I usually use the orange model. It's a very nice model because everyone knows how an orange looks like. Mm-hmm. You could mm-hmm. use an orange dimpled, you'll get dimples on the breast. You could get lumps on the breast. Lumps could be of different shapes. You could get a rash on the breast. You could get something we call pulled orange, meaning your breast looks like an orange peeling. It's a specific kind of cancer, really, that we call inflammatory breast cancer. It's rare. It's not very common, so most women will not get that. You could get nipples. Your nipples could actually inverted nipples, but there are women who do have inverted nipples naturally. Yeah. You could also have secretions coming out from your nipples. It could be bloody. It could just be milky secretions. It could just be also a lump that is painful. Most of the time, painful lumps are not usually cancers. Most of what I just described, 80% of the time you come to the office, we're going to order a mammogram. We're going to tell you there is nothing. Maybe just because you had a child recently and you're having an abscess, which is about to form or you're just having your periods and your breast is just changing based on the period, you learn to understand yourself. But what is interesting is that the American Association of Oncologists, which we belong to, 
doesn't advise women to self-examine. I differ. I really mm. feel that mm. women should understand themselves because if you see anything wrong, then you should come to the physician who is not who is going to examine you, but who is going to also order a mammogram. Yeah. And mm. uh, depending on your age, we could order further tests. If you're young, you have dense breasts, we could get to do you an ultrasound. And you could qualify to get an MRI of the breast, really, other than a mammogram. So there's just a lot more things we offer to those women. But my advice and my message to all women is if you see anything out of the normal, if you're less than 40 years old, which you're not getting regular mammograms, report it to your primary care doctor. Talk about it to be your advocate. Ask for a mammogram to be done. And you're going to get it, and your insurance is going to cover it because you have a lesion. You are no longer screening. You are actually going in for diagnosis. So that's how you can use your insurance well in this country if you're here. Right. At home, the story is different. We really need good advocacy to put public health strategies that are oriented towards women's health. Screening in all fields, including breast cancer, cervical cancer, including things like getting our HPV vaccines to our children and making sure we eliminate things like that. So yeah. we'll get to talk about that. But what I want to say is I usually am one of those who tell my patients, I'm going to tell you what I tell them. There are no signs in the beginning, nothing, really. Right. Well, thank you so much for that. Now, Talking about the mammogram, I know a lot of women, you know, kind of shy away from that. But most importantly, a lot of women don't even know when to get a mammogram. And especially in our African community, and most importantly, especially back home, where, they, you know, here in America, for example, there are some wellness checks that you have to do every year. Sometimes it's mandatory for you to maintain your health insurance at work. But back home... People just go to the hospital when they feel sick. Like I was having a conversation with a couple of friends because I really want to do something really big to encourage people to do wellness checks as even people our age, our age group, you know, as young as possible. But 100% of my friends, none of them go to the hospital just to check themselves. Like none of my friends actually have had a pap smear before, you know, just basic things that we take for granted here. And you know, talking about breast cancer, like going to get a mammogram and stuff like that, we don't really have lack of resources, but we also, it could potentially be expensive. And, you know, so a lot of women may not even know when the year, like what time in their life should they be getting a mammogram just, or at least a check for breast cancer, just, you know, to make sure that they're safe or they're preventing any kind of advanced disease of that sort. So when is the age where a mammogram is recommended for women? <laughs> that's a, that's a that's a very interesting question because I'll take the state the US condition. Before 5 years back it was simple. Okay? There was mm-hmm. no fight between any association over the others. There are so many associations that deal with the breast. Mm-hmm. American Breast Surgeon Association, Medical Oncology, there is the US Task Force which decides our public health strategies. Before that, it was every woman who is 40 years and above needs a mammogram once every year. Mm-hmm. Then others came in and said, okay, this is too expensive. We're doing it 99% of the time. We're not finding anything in this group of women. So let's do it every two years. Another group comes and says, let's start it at 45. 
and another group comes and says, let's start at 50. Yeah. So there are several recommendations out there, but what I would go by and what insurance still covers, and uh, this is based on the risk, really, stratifications, though you may find a lot of false negatives and some false, a lot of false positives that will later on have a biopsy and nothing is going to be there. Mm -hmm. The guidelines for now, which I stand by, really, is that women get a mammogram at age of 40 for screening mm -hmm. and yearly. If you're unable to do yearly, at least do every two years, get a mammogram. After the age of 50, you can do every two years okay. going okay. forward. And you should stop at the age of 75 because there is no benefit anymore getting to do that. Screening is different from diagnosing mammogram. It's the same thing like colonoscopy. People get to confuse it. If you're young, 22 years old, and you come to my office and you have a lump, you need a mammogram. It's not screening. Yeah, it's diagnostic. <laughs> It's more of a diagnostic mammogram. Once you go in for a screen mammogram and we find something on it, we're going to send you for a diagnostic mammogram, which are completely two different things. They get to take more pictures. They get to take better pictures, 3D at times. They get to do more complex exams to make sure we get to know what is happening and maybe do a stereotactic biopsy in order to know exactly what is happening. So... This is, I stand by that, but if you go to all these other associations, you'll see different ages and different groups, and they have scientific reasons why they do that. Now, if you have a family member who has cancer, like a familiar cancer disease, which we may have time to talk about, someone who has like a BRCA gene or a Pap B gene, which BRCA is just breast cancer gene, one and two, and uh, your mom or your siblings or anyone else, the age at which they had breast cancer, we're going to sub subtract five years from there. And then that's going to be your age to screen, which is going to be covered by your insurance. And if that person had it at 40, we're just automatically going to do yours at 35. There are other cancer genes that are more precarious and dangerous than the BRCA gene, which we don't talk about a lot in the media. That's why I advise women, when you go in for genetic screening, don't just go in for BRCA gene. If they are screening you because someone has cancer in your family, they should do the whole panel. Mm. Not just doing a next gene sequencing just like that. They'll do a panel of several genes. You may not have BRCA, but you may have other genes that cause you to have cancer. So these are, there are several ways we do screen people, and these are things your primary doctors need to be able to communicate with you. And don't hesitate each time you go to see your primary doctor to talk about your cancer risk. It could be breast cancer. It could be ovarian cancer. It could be uterine cancer. It could be colon cancer. It could be pancreatic cancer. It could be a lot of other cancers that are having familiar kind of patterns where people do get inheritance from their, from their parents without knowing. Wow. Thank you so much for that information. Um, I can listen to you all day. Like what you have said, I mean, the podcast might as well just end, you know. Well, thank you so much. Now, I want us to digress a little bit and dive deep into the stories and experiences, right? Um, we have two amazing, beautiful, beautiful ladies here with us today. Like I said, we have here Aqui and Gwen, and we've already shared Gwen's story, but we might revisit it briefly eventually. But I want us to... Um, Focus on Aqui's story. Um, and Aqui, I really want us to, I want you to tell us your breast cancer story. 
and just how you came about discovering that you had breast cancer? Like what actually happened before it warranted you to go for a check and just the entire experience? And if you could also highlight the type of breast cancer that you had, because that would be very helpful with Dr. Foma actually explaining and differentiating between the different types of breast cancer. And you can start by introducing yourself as well. Um, thank you, Anyol. I am Aquita or Aqui Anjo. I'm a breast cancer survivor and the founder of the nonprofit Dare to Live with Anjo, a nonprofit that um, our mission is to create awareness on breast cancer amongst women, especially young women, and we provide resources to breast cancer patients and survivors back home in Cameroon. Um, I got diagnosed in 2018. I was 33 years old at that time. The way that I found out that I had breast cancer was through pain. I had a sharp, I felt a sharp pain at the side of my right breast. It was kind of persistent. I'd had that pain for a couple of days and I ignored it. It was just a sharp pain, which I kind of ignored. And then there was this particular day that the pain was persistent. I'm like, oh, what's happening there? And I sent my hand to feel, and there was this hard, big lump sitting right there, you know, my armpit. I just, I never did my my breast exams prior to that. And I had a daughter. At that time, my daughter was about 22 months old. So I'm pregnant and taking her for appointment. I never went for my own checkups. I never did my breast or my self-breast exams. When I felt the pain, I didn't think cancer, of course, but I went to the hospital to just get it checked. My doctor felt it and sent me to go do a mammogram. I did that and they kind of suspected it could be cancer. So I had to do a biopsy for them to confirm. I think a biopsy and an ultrasound. And three days later, I got the call saying that indeed I had breast cancer. Of course, I knew I was dying. Like, okay, I'm going to die. So that's it. I screamed and cried and was like, wow, this is it. I'm dying. I have a young daughter, 33 years old. My life's about to end. Oh, well, whatever. The doctors gave me two weeks for me to come in for them to do further testing to know um, what kind of breast cancer I had, what stage, and what the treatment process was going to look like and when I was going to start treatment. Within those two weeks, I made a conscious decision. I said, okay, I'm going to die. I'm going to start my treatment in maybe a month or so. Before that, I wanted to live life. I thought maybe I'll never get to travel. Maybe I'll never get to go out with friends. Maybe that's it. That's it. So I took those two weeks and I, I went to my best friend's house. I told her, I said, don't mention cancer. I don't want to know. I don't want to hear anything about cancer. I just want to have fun. I was there with my daughter. And we just like, lived life, you know, went out, did fun things. I just had a really good time. Then I came back and I went to the hospital to um, start getting tested, MRIs, PET scans, and all of that. Within that time, I did my own research. And I was like, if there's two things that I don't want to hear is that I have stage three and above, or that I have triple negative breast cancer. I read about those things. I was like, please, God, I know I'm going to die, but I don't want to have stage three and above, and I don't want to hear that I have triple negative breast cancer, please. So after all the testing, I met with my oncologist, very great guy, the best doctor ever. And he was like, well, we got the results, and we think we have stage two, 
but we had to do further testing because he felt my armpit and he was like, I, I have a feeling that, you know, maybe the cancer has spread to your lymph nodes. So we're going to do further testing. But you do have triple negative breast cancer. And I was like, wow, I'm dying even sooner than I thought. I was screaming and crying. And he was like, no, it's not the end of the world. You know, we could, we, we're going to treat it. The women that go along to have... um live many more years after being diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer. It doesn't mean you're going to die. You know, we just, we're just going to go through the treatment and you have to have your mind, you know, have a positive mind and we can do this. And I was like, wow. And then they did, after testing my lymph nodes, it did come back that the cancer had spread to my, the lymph nodes in my armpit. So I was diagnosed with stage three, triple negative breast cancer, February 2019. And I started treatment um, that same month. So I did chemotherapy, about 16 rounds of chemotherapy, the worst thing ever. <laughs> and then I did surgery. So I did a lumpectomy. I didn't take, uh, I didn't do a mastectomy, you know, to curve the breast. I did, I only took out the lump that was left in my breast after my chemo. I did a lumpectomy and then I went on to do six weeks of radiation on the breast. And then I opted for immunotherapy which I did for about um, maybe two years because I ended the immunotherapy early this year, in May of this year. So I did immunotherapy too. And here I am today, cancer, well, I'm in remission. My doctor tells me not to say cancer free. He says that we're never really free of cancer, that I have to say I'm in remission. So um, after doing a mammogram and other tests, they, didn't, they, they, they don't find any cancer anymore, so... I'm here thriving and um, working hard on my nonprofit. Amazing, amazing. Thank you so much for that amazing story. You know, stories like this just make one to look at their lives and ask why, why are you even worried about, you know, about the things that happen to you? Like there are people who have worse issues than you are. There are people who have been through worse, actually than you are. And I have been following you for a while on social media and I really just want to commend you for how you handled this entire experience. You know, it takes such strength that you showed and portrayed to really go through and even survive what you went through. And I just want to applaud you for that and thank God that, you know, you're here to share your story and you're doing so much good in our community, which we will talk about later. Now, um, I know I've already spoken to you, Gwen. I want you to just quickly talk about your own experience and also highlight the kind of cancer that you had so that Dr. Forma can actually have some substance to compare and contrast between both types of cancers. Uh, yeah, just listening to Dr. Farmer and Akui, like, I'm already, I'm just like exhausted. I agree with you. <laughs> After listening to them, I'm like, maybe we should end the podcast now. Me going through it, I still feel so educated just listening to Dr. and Akui. I thought I knew everything about uh, <laughs> breast cancer by now, but I know nothing. Um, as we all heard last week, I was diagnosed with stage two, her two positive breast cancer unlike Acri, as i listen as i listen to her now and i know i have followed Acri for a while but honestly i've never really heard her story like she just said it and it's just so opposite of what i went through right and i'm like oh wow you were so lucky Acri. 
For me, I was um, 27 when I got diagnosed in 2015. And for me, I did my breast exam with my oncologist in February. And I found this lump when I was taking a shower in May. I got diagnosed in June. And my doctors just did not think it was breast cancer. And uh, they never wanted to send me for any testing at that time because they thought, like Dr. Palmer said, it was just maybe the time of my period. Maybe it's just the changes that um, some women do have during that time. And I really had to push for it, going to other doctors, not knowing that cancer lumps really don't don't make you feel any different or have any pain. I was there saying, I have pain just because I wanted to push them to give me more testing. It was just that instinct telling me to do it. And uh, long story short, it took months for me to actually get my diagnosis because the doctors were reluctant to do that. But finally, I did get those results come in, and it was HER2 positive. And as the doctor said, we really just don't think that we have a lot of genetic mutations that could really cause us to have cancer. Somebody like me, when I got diagnosed, the doctors cannot imagine why at that time they're like, oh, you're so young um, to even have breast cancer. We know family history and all that which was why they took so long to actually get my diagnosis in. But then I did go for genetic testing, and the doctors were saying it could be BRCA gene, and I was there praying, you know what? I don't want BRCA gene. Let it not be anything. Let it just be. But when I actually got my genetic uh, test came back, I I was like, uh, I wish it was BRCA. I do have another gene mutation called Lee syndrome. That is one mutation which, when I go to any new doctor, most of them really don't know anything about it. They're like, what the hell are you talking about? Or I have to force them to do my yearly um, or quarterly screenings for that mutation. What I'm trying to say is there are so many mutations. I'm just agreeing with the doctor that we should always be our own advocate and um, push for... Uh, broad spectrum um, genetic um, testing at any time. And for me, for all my family members that are in the United States that um, have done the mutation testing, because I did it, I'm the only one in my siblings who have it. I don't think my parents had it. They're all in their 60s and up, Mm -hmm. and they never had any cancers and all that, and my doctors think maybe they don't. And maybe it just started with me. I just had this switch in a protein, in my P53 protein, and then it started with me. So it could start with you. It could start with your parents. It could be something that came down the line, but it can still just be you starting with you. So, yes, I did have HER2 positive. Um, cancer, unlike Akui had triple negative. I did have a double mastectomy with reconstruction. I did not go through radiation for the reasons that I have the Lefromani syndrome, and it is more disadvantageous for me going through radiation than it would be if I do have it. And that is it for my story. Oh, thank you so much. And um, Akwe, I just wanted to make sure you don't have a family history as well of breast of cancer, right? Or at least breast cancer, correct? 
no known family history. Only my grandparents, big grandparents, yeah, no known family history of breast of cancer or yeah. Wow. So both of you actually were diagnosed with different stages of cancer, different genetic mutations, but no family history of cancer. And that should just solidify um, what Dr. Foma was saying, that you don't necessarily have to have a family history of breast cancer to have breast cancer. So this is these are like two pieces of evidence that actually show that these are two people who were just living their lives very healthy, no other comorbidities, no other things going on, and boom, you know, they had the diagnosis of breast cancer. Now, uh, Dr. Foma, after having heard of both stories, I know there's a lot to compare and contrast, which is what I really look forward to because I really want us to understand the different aspects and dynamics of these two types of cancers. So what will you say, let's start with the prognosis, right? And the severity of each type of cancer. And if there's any other common cancer or any common mutation that exists, especially in our community, I would really appreciate it if you actually highlight that as well so that people should just understand that these are things that could happen to anyone. These are things that are as common as any other disease and to be very aware of. I'm uh, very touched by both stories and really it's very common for us physicians to actually downplay the symptoms of patients, especially if we're dealing with situations that we're not used to. So that's why I always say patients should be their own advocate. Okay. Yeah. At times you would have something that no one else knows about and you know about it better than your doctor because there's so many diseases out there. Now, talking about different kinds of breast cancer, it depends how you want to classify them. So each time we talk about kinds of breast cancer, I'm going to classify in the most popular way people know about how to classify breast You could classify breast cancer by certain things we call receptors, which are about on the breast cancer. They are like light bulbs that you see that are able to indicate to here I am. You can identify me by this. So the first thing about them is that some of the breast cancers do have receptors for estrogen, which is a hormone that women have. What is good about this receptor is that we have something we can target, something we can use medication against it. Because if we block estrogen, these cancers, their bulb will turn off the switch and the cells are going to die. They could also have another hormone, which is common in men and women called progesterone. Oestrogen and progesterone, for those who have done biochemistry, they are very similar molecules, easily targetable. They are just similar to testosterone, but you have testosterone more in men. So you could have women who have progesterone, which is not as a strong marker as oestrogen. Oestrogen is more of a stronger marker. But when you say we are hormone positive, you either have oestrogen or progesterone in your cancer. So that's one of the two markers we look at. As time went on in medicine, we discovered that there is another marker we could get on the cells, which is called a HER2, also called other things. This particular marker can have other names. There is HER1, there's HER3, which we target in medicine for several reasons. But a HER2 molecule is the first molecule that we could see and uh, actually have a drug that can actually target that molecule. So scientists back in the 70s started classifying breast cancer based on these three markers. Based on these three markers, if you permutate them in any way you want to, you're going to have four kinds of breast cancer. Patients who are hormone positive and HER2 negative, meaning they have 
hormone positive breast cancer, the HER2 is negative. They used to have the best prognosis, used to. Meaning that majority of them, if we see it early, we're going to actually be able to treat stage one, two, and three with all the technology we have, and uh, they will be cured. The chances of reoccurrence is low. We just need to monitor them. The second type I'm going to talk about are women who have triple positive, as you hear about triple negative. They have progesterone positive, estrogen positive, and HER2 positive. HER2 used to have one of the worst prognosis, not triple negative. In the historic definition of breast cancer, HER2 used to be a death sentence. What happened is that dramatically, there is no field in medicine like oncology. Yeah, actually, we pride ourselves with the most innovative field in medicine in the past 20 years. Every single day in oncology, we have new drugs. Yeah. Even for HER2, as I'm talking to you, every single day we have new drugs coming out, even for positive um, breast cancer. So HER2, we started developing medications for HER2 in the 90s. And uh, so far, we have had so many good medications that are able to target this cancer. And it has taken it from the worst cancer to now a moderate or even better risk, not as good as patients who have progesterone and estrogen positive. So that's the second law. Then we have a third lot of patients who have just hard to positive, but their progesterone and estrogen negative. These patients are just hard to positive. So these are hard to pure, hard to positive breast cancers. That's the third group of patients. And uh, these patients also do well now. They used to do so poorly. Now they do well. Like Gwendolyn had that. In the past, if in the 60s, we're just going to be praying. Why? Because this heart was a driver. It's a cell driver. It helps cells to multiply. So we're able to stop that and the cells don't multiply. Now we can target heart to from multiple ends. And there is a new subtype we call heart low, heart to low. In the next two years, you're going to hear about that. Mm-hmm. Us in the oncology world, we know that because that's how we're classifying certain cancers now. Because we're having, when we say you're hard to positive, we use certain specific tests, which I'm not going to go into. History, immunochemistry, in order to identify them, you need to be a three plus. But there are people who are hard to positive, but they are not as positive to be positive because the drugs we use are not able to help them. Transtuzumab, pectuzumab, they are not able. But now we have new drugs, some as transtuzumab, durextecan, they do magic to those who just have a one plus in heart two, even a two plus. So right now, there's going to be something called a heart to low disease, which is going to further divide breast cancer into subgroups because we have drugs to treat those patients now. Those were patients that originally will fall into my next category, category four, which were triple negative. That's why now I'm advocating my patients, when I see them in the office, go back. Those who are coming for some other reason, I tell them right now, you are hard to know. So that you should know that we have medications, you are no longer triple negative. When I go back to your biopsies and I see that you were hard to know, what does that mean for the patient? It means that if they have a reoccurrence, if there were metastatic disease, there are new drugs out there that can actually improve on the overall survival if they have a reoccurrence. And it's so dramatic and magical that what we are seeing is something amazing. Almost 95% response rate 
The yeah. question is how long are they going to respond? So this is the most common way of classifying cancers that the world knows. But there are other ways we do. We're using genetic markers now. We're doing next generation sequencing. We're using certain different, we know that all triple negative cancers are not the same because they don't behave the same. We know that. So genomic medicine is really changing things and cancers will be more divided in the oncology group where you find yourself, they could be more complex in the way we talk about them. There are other entities like which we have not spoken about, things like stage zero, DCIS, LCIS in cancers. We have not spoken about lobal um, ductal carcinomas and uh, lobal carcinomas. We have not spoken about inflammatory breast cancers. But in all these breast cancers, no matter how different they are, we still do those receptors. We don't talk about the other things because they don't really change the way we're going to treat it. So the way we classify it is the way we're going to treat it. And the way we do classify it to these four cancers. Very soon, there will be five and six and seven different types. This is now the right time. So there's good things out there. One thing I want to say is that the prognosis in the U.S. is very good for women who are diagnosed with breast cancer. So people should not be afraid, especially if you have stage three down. Prognosis is very good. We can do a lot of things. 90% of women survive from their breast cancer. In the 70s, that number was dismal. was the reverse because all we could do was surgery. Medical oncology is actually the youngest profession, really, among the professions that treat cancers. I may just go to tell you, in cancers, there are several kinds of treatments that we do. We could cut it out. In the past, there used to be a word called radical mastectomy. It's as radical as itself, but it doesn't come from the word radical. It comes from the word roots. There was a surgeon who thought that the more you take out tissues, the better it's going to be. So they took out the breast, the pectoralis measure, which is the muscle under the breast. They yeah. took out the muscles under the armpit. They took out all the lymph nodes. So these women really developed a lot of complications. Then later on, we started doing just mastectomies, then later on, lumpectomies, later on, included the radiation oncologist who can give radiation to that area. Then later on, you do have the medical oncologist who can provide different kinds of treatment. As Aqui said, she had two types of those treatments, and Gwen had, I think, other different types. So there is targeted treatment, which you can use a target against her too. There is immunotherapy, which you can boost the immune system to kill cancer cells. There is chemotherapy that everyone knows about, where we can use toxic drugs to kill cancer cells, but they are getting better, please. And uh, you do have hormonal therapy, where you can use hormones in order to block cancer cells from growing. That's what we do with prostate, we do with breast, we do with ovaries, we do with a lot of other cancers that have receptors for hormones. Right. Well, thank you so much for that. Um, I know when you said, you know, using toxic drugs and they're getting better, I saw Aqui. Aqui was just like so over it. <laughs> We're going to talk about your experience with that, Aqui, for sure. Now, can I ask Dr. Farmer something? Sure. As you're talking, Doctor, I'm thinking, being that we're all from Cameroon, I would just specify Cameroon in particular because that's what I know better in Africa. Being that you have been a practitioner in Cameroon and here in the United States, I'm just thinking as you talk, do the doctors in Cameroon really break down the diagnosis for cancer like we do here? And how long does it really take for that to come back? Because I don't even know if they actually have the resources to really break down these cancers. Yeah, you're living, it's like um, 
we're comparing a cat to a lion because they are all they are all uh, how do they call them? <laughs> what do they? They all of the cat family. Right. <laughs> the, the problem we have back home is fundamental in Africa. There's a fundamental rudimentary problem. I'll give you an example. Let's take breast cancer. I'm going to be quite short, but I'm going to make you understand it. If you are in Cameroon and you have breast cancer, do you know there is no mammography center? Maybe in the whole of Northwest. Yeah, there is no one. So, so no one is even going to do a mammogram. Once you do a mammogram, you need a specialist who is going to do a biopsy. And there is no radiation. There is no radiologist who specialize in the breast who can do stereotactic biopsies. There is no one who can do inking in order for you to even identify if the lymph nodes are positive or not. Now, even if you take out the tissue in the whole Northwest, there are two pathologists who are available, okay? There is Maison Polyclinic. I'm just taking that example that I know, and maybe there is a bingo where you can get pathology specimens analyzed. In order to analyze those specimens, they are still using, I'm a pathologist, so I can tell you about, they're still using rudimentary things. They could test for, they could test for ER and PR, that's estrogen and progesterone once they get it. But a lot of times the diagnoses are not very forthcoming. Hard to in itself could be difficult for them to test because you need very complex situations. There are other ways, but the other ways of testing is not as uh, efficacious. So most of the time they'll miss a lot of hard to cancers. Now, even after diagnosing these patients, okay, we need to be able to give medications. There are no chemotherapy nurses. I don't want to talk about the doctors. You need a specialized nurse to be able to give these drugs. There is no one who can put a port in Cameroon safely for these patients to have a port where they can come in and have access to get chemotherapy without it causing problems. Things like adramycin and, and the cyclophosphamide and all these drugs that we give patients, carboplanum, we cannot give them because you can't give them on a peripheral line from day to day. You can actually try some of them. So you get it, you have a problem, not to even talk about the oncologists themselves. If you need radiation, there is only L'Hopital General in Douala, which is not functioning. Okay, the radiation oncologist there is my friend, my son, Michelle. Um, uh, sorry, Anne. She's my Anne is my classmate and my friend. We're accused together. So I know how that place works. I know everybody in Cameroon. Trust me, I know everybody because I went to school with all of them. Yeah. So in those places, they are capable of doing it. A lot of them went and studied in France, but they don't have the machines. They're not even maintaining the machines. They are unable to radiate those areas. They are unable to work from day to day without the machines breaking down. Now, if you need surgery, how are you going to preserve a breast if you're unable to do inking and know exactly where it is? So there's a problem at that level to even preserve the breast. So they go mostly for mastectomy. At times, you even want to do staging. How do you do a PET scan where there is no PET scan in Cameroon in order to see if there is a lesion wow. in any other part of the body? How do you do? They can do CT scans, but you know they have their limits in what they can take and do. How do they even do an MRI to figure out if there's meds in the brain if you're unable to have an MRI in the whole of Yaoundé, only in the military hospital? So I'm trying to paint you a picture. It's a health system problem. Mm. It's a public health problem. It's a priority problem. It's a problem where you could use breast cancer as a surrogate to improve the healthcare system overall. 
and see where the limits are. And those groups of people need to be trained. I'm not even talking about those who have to be trained around radiation oncology, the technicians, the dosimetries, those who have to be trained around the medical oncologists, those who have to be trained around the surgeons, those who have to be trained around the pharmacies. You need special pharmacists who are specialized in mixing chemotherapy. I think um, uh, Anu knows that. So it's all about training, capacity building, and sustainability, which your question really is a sad part, but majority of the cases will still be metastatic disease. Well, thank you so much uh, to both of you, Gwen. Thank you especially for asking that question. And Dr. Foma, thank you for elaborating it so eloquently. I'm having chills listening to Me you. <laughs> I'm literally <laughs> having chills because I can imagine... M- if my mother or I'll not even say my mother because she's a doctor and she probably knows a lot more, but if my auntie or anybody else in my family or if even one of you were in Cameroon at this point, I don't even know like your prognosis. I don't even, you know, like I feel like just because of the, the extreme lack of resources, it already affects the quality of life and the, you know, the lifespan, you know, because I feel, we, and we're very educated. We have so much potential, but like Dr. Foma said, it's just the system. It's a systemic issue. And with this lack of resources, that also just highlights the fact that there's so much work to do. Like when I hear about things like this, it really pumps me up to want to do even more through my platform and through other things that I'm doing on the back end. But I, I really hope that we can, we can improve with things like this, you know, personally having lived in a couple of African countries and seen different healthcare systems, like it's, it's such a pity that we still have, we don't, we, we can't even fend for at least one major device that's very important to diagnose, like a diagnostic device and things like that. So those are things that really inspire me to want to do more and want to make an impact. And definitely I will be having a conversation eventually with you, Dr. Foma, on this because this this literally gave me chills. I had no idea that that's actually the reality in Cameroon. Now, uh, before we go back to Aqui's story, um, I wanted to also highlight another thing which I don't think has uh, a lot of light has been shed on. I talked about that with Gwen last week, but we did not really go deep into the scientific aspect of it. When when you were talking about the different prognoses and different types of breast cancers, I really wanted us to also talk about breast cancer in men because that's something that has truly been ignored because a lot of men think that, oh, I mean, everybody has breasts, right? Men have breasts as well, but they just don't have the big mammary glands to accommodate, you know, breastfeeding and stuff like that. But breast cancer in men is actually something that's real. And a lot of people are not aware of that. So I just wanted you to give us a quick introduction on that, as well as highlight like all these differences in the genes and the mutations. Do they also apply in breast cancer in men? Oh, yeah. So they do apply, but I would always like to put things in perspective. Breast cancer can occur in men. It's rare. And that's the truth. It's about 2% of all can breast cancers, 2%. Mm-hmm. And uh, we classify the same way, hormone positive, hormone HER2 positive, combined as triple positive, triple negative. It's classified in the same way and it's treated in the same way like breast cancer in women. So based on the stage, you're offered a series of treatments, as you could see from Gwen and Aqui, they offer different treatments based on what kind of cancer they had. If you have a triple negative cancer, we want to reduce 
the size of the lawn first before taking it out. So we usually offer something called new adjuvant treatment, meaning before adjuvant, meaning we're giving before taking the cancer out. We give you treatment before surgery. That's the same thing that occurs in men who have breast cancer, which is triple negative. If you have estrogen positive breast cancer that we see it and we know that that's it and the heart two negative, most of the time we're just going to go ahead and take it out based on the size, how big it is. It's usually less than five centimeters. We're going to take it out. Then we're going to offer you radiation, especially if we're doing a lumpectomy. We're going to offer you radiation to that area. Then we'll, we'll offer you hormonal treatment, which you may take for five to 10 years. That's something we've not spoken about. It has different side effects from the side effects you're going to get from getting chemotherapy or from getting heart drugs. If you're heart too positive, you must get chemotherapy because the heart two drugs work alongside with chemotherapy. So if you're heart too positive, you, chemotherapy is going to be in your, your, in, your, in your school book. You're going to get chemotherapy. Now, the chemotherapy we give, we give it alongside with the hard to drugs. The most common ones is something we call transtuzumab. We use pertuzumab. There's a trial called the Cleopatra trial. We give all of this with chemotherapy on it. We used to give something terrible before that, but this trial actually made things a bit easy, which was called the extreme <laughs> regimen. That's actually how the name works. But now... What we so you could see that this actually helps. So they are still going to get. And um, when said something about Lee-Famini syndrome, which is important because when you radiate any area you radiate in these patients, they turn to get scarring that doesn't heal. They tend to get cancers also. More cancers from radiation because radiation itself can induce cancers, can induce yeah. cell death, and can induce normal cells not to heal well, and they're going to become cancerous. So there are so many genes out there that cause cancers, even in men. So all these genes, BRCA genes, if you have a BRCA in your family, take care of your, your brothers and sisters, your brothers too, and your father and your mom and your uncles. Why? Because if you have a BRCA gene, your chances of getting prostate cancer is extremely high. Wow. Pancreatic <laughs> cancer is extremely high. Those are cancers you see in men. Gastric cancer is extremely high. So in gastric cancer, we also do the hard to gene those who have cancer of the stomach, because we give them the same medication we're giving for the breast. And uh, if you have these BRCA genes, you, every woman with an ovarian cancer gets a BRCA testing, but not every woman with a breast cancer gets a BRCA test. It just tells you ovarian cancer, we still don't know what to do with it a lot of the time. So bad when you have it compared to what we can do with breast cancer. So men too do have prostate they do have all these other, there's a PAP B2 gene. There are other genes that there are about a panel of so many genes that we have identified so far. There can be about 20. Each day we're adding them. And there are also genetic syndromes. Like Lee Famini, you have a series of other screenings you're supposed to do. Not only of the breast, which has all to do with other cancers, even colonoscopies and all of that, because you are having a high risk of having those other breast cancers. That's why I advocated that if for some reason you meet the criteria to get genetic screening, don't go just for BRCA. Ask them that your insurance is going to cover it because you're going for screening, so they should screen you for everything that we have out there. The question would be, what do we do with the results? At times, we don't even know what to do with the results. Some results coming, we don't know what they're going to mean, but we'll tell you it's good to know. But men do have breast cancer, but they have it. They should be able to examine their breast too. 
If they see a lump in their breast, they should be able to consult for it. The thing about men, even African, non-Africans, men usually die young because they don't care about their health. And majority of men with breast cancers actually have their breasts can they can actually feel lumps more than women, but right. they come late stage breast cancer compared to women in the US. So most men come already with stage four disease. Wow. For so many reasons. Men don't go to the hospital, they don't do annual screening, they take things for granted. It's just I don't know, they feel they are super human, but they are not. Right. Or maybe or maybe just the women women, you know, typically women are very attentive to details and sensitive to certain things, but men are just like carefree, you know. So I, I think that also contributes to that. today thank you for listening to our show if you want to participate in the show or find out more helpful resources then visit www.livingafricanpodcast.com for more information or email us at hello at livingafricanpodcast.com also don't forget to connect with us on all social media platforms at living african podcast you can also connect with anyo directly on facebook Facebook or Instagram at Anyo Farmbard. Thanks again for listening and let's not forget to be more understanding and nicer to one another.